Um, I know there's uh, parties. I know there's uh, uh, the big event. And, you know, uh, I, too, uh, have been looking forward to it. And uh, I'm so thrilled it went down the way it did. Uh, Punxsutawney Phil uh, uh, didn't see a shadow. And uh, spring is coming, right? That's what you're excited about today, right? All right. Good to know that. By the way, Lockwood family, I, you guys, I'm just telling you, I, I, I can't give it to you for the, the, uh, the, the team, but, but the courage, when we, when we have to like storm a mountain, I want Ben Lockwood behind me because that kid gets up here and wears a Patriots jersey. That's, that's courage, man. That is courage. All right. Nice. <clears throat> Go, Ben. All right. Uh, let's open up the Word of God today. Just a short little passage. Uh, we're reading from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This is Paul uh, writing to Timothy. He's giving him all sorts of uh, instructions and uh, how to be a church leader. And he's been um, kind of... Uh, telling them how to <clears throat> oversee the church, that type of thing. And then um, he gets to this one little phrase here. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Friends, that little phrase, that's the word of the Lord. May it touch us today as we study and think about who Jesus really is. God, um, we do pray that your word will have an impact on us. We pray that the mystery of you showing up in the flesh will capture our imaginations. That we will be people who are just wowed by the fact that you would care for us so much and care for this world so much. And we just love you for it. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're, uh, we're looking at um, our series, Long Story Short. It's uh, going through the whole uh, sort of the big picture of the Bible in six movements. We thought, you know, this is a good way to start a new year to just kind of make sure everybody has a sense, how, what is the big story of the Bible? And so, um, and we're, we're uh, using the help from uh, Joshua McNall's book, Long Story Short. Uh, we, three weeks ago, we started with creation uh, how it all began, God does it, God creates things good, everything is, is uh, rolling well. And then two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the crisis of the fall, the, the fall of humankind, where um, human beings who have received life and who have been offered um, this uh, relationship with God kind of say, you know, I think I might know how to do this better. And we kind of had to admit that so often in our own lives, we look at what God offers and say, maybe I, maybe I have a better way, God, and we, we push back against God. 
We saw the consequences of that, and so the consequences of that is death is brought into the world. And so last week we looked at the calling, the calling of Israel, God's own people who are raised up in order to uh, bring about a process, a very long process of salvation that God is, God is weaving into the fabric of the world. You know, if you're like me, you're like, come on, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you just get it over with? But that's not God's way. God is much more interested in, in a longer process, which has far more um, uh, uh, eventual uh, good that comes from it, even if we can look at the specifics and say, I wonder why he did it that way. And so we looked at how he started with Abraham and Sarah, and he uh, built their family, and he chose unlikely people to be the start of this salvation process. Well, today we're going to look at the fourth of six movements, and it's the coming of Christ. It's God showing up in the flesh. And so if you're looking at the Bible and you're saying, what is this Bible about? You can start with creation, and then the fall of humankind, and then the calling of Israel to bring about the process of of salvation, and then Jesus is the consummation, he's the sort of the end result of that calling. He's the Messiah who shows up. A little bit of background here. Abraham uh, was uh, the father of the family which uh, uh, becomes Israel. His son Isaac had another son named Jacob who had 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. They, because of famine, headed down into Egypt. And uh, that worked well for a while. But then after a while, they were a little people group that the Egyptians looked at and said, you know what, we could enslave these people and... uh, get a lot of work out of them, and they did that. And for 400 years, the Israelites lived in slavery. And that was something that never left them. I suspect that if you have uh, um, been a person who has been enslaved in some way, that you, the memory of that does not leave you. And it didn't leave these people. They knew that they were unable to save themselves, but God comes in in a miraculous way and he pulls them out of Egypt. He saves them and he, sell, he tells them, I, just like I promised Abraham, I'm raising you up to be a people that I'm setting aside to be different from the other nations so that you will bring, you'll be the process to bring salvation to the world. And so he says, so you're going to have to be different. I'm going to give you a bunch of laws. Some of those are the Ten Commandments. Some of those are some of the uh, sort of stranger ceremonial laws. You know, you uh, you, you can't eat uh, shellfish, and uh, you have to uh, only wear certain kind of clothes and things like that. And frankly, it was, uh, it was a process by which uh, they were differentiated from the rest of the people around them. And, and perhaps even most importantly, they didn't worship a, a, an idol god. They didn't worship a god that you could kind of reach out and touch and and uh, that you could uh, move around from location to location. They worshipped the God. Their claim that God was the God of the whole world was a claim completely unique to them. Nobody else claimed that. Everybody else said, my God controls this little area of geography here, this little area of the world. They said, "Mm -mm, we worship the one true God. Everybody said, where is your God? They said, he's invisible. And people said, oh, really? But found out that their God was all-powerful. They go uh, to the promised land, being led by Moses and Joshua, and they follow God for a while, but after a while they um, get caught up in saying, I want to do things my own way. 
And um, they go through the time of the judges, stories of Samson and Deborah and Gideon, people who were calling them back to God when they had strayed away. And after a while, they're not having a king like the other nations uh, drove them to, to beg, demand, insist that they have one. And finally, God says, well, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you kings, but just so you know, there's going to be a cost. These kings are going to take your money, and they're going to take your sons for the army. They're going to take your daughters for uh, their harem, that type of thing. And, uh, and so that's what happened. They got King Saul, and then they got King David, who was really a, a high point. Then they got King Solomon, who uh, uh, was wise but didn't always live into that wisdom. And after that, they, um, uh, there was a split in the kingdom. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was uh, not interested in uh, working in a conciliatory way. Instead, he said, it's going to be my way or the highway. And all of the ten northern tribes of Israel said, thank you very much, it's the highway for us, we're out of here. And they, uh, they wouldn't listen to him, they wouldn't obey him, so he just ruled the little southern kingdom of Judah, and other kings ruled the northern kingdom of Israel. And in the midst of that, the uh, Israelite people continued to uh, really have a lot of negative experiences of pushing back on God and finding that that's not the best choice. God sent prophets again and again to warn them of the consequences of of not choosing life with him. And those prophets stood up to corrupt kings and corrupt royalty, prophets like Elijah. And they demanded justice for people who were being oppressed. That would be like the prophet Amos. And they warned what would happen if no one changed their actions, like the prophet Jeremiah. But they didn't change those actions. And after several hundred years, Israel, the northern kingdom, those northern ten tribes, they were wiped out by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And you know what? Since then, we have heard nothing from them. Those tribes disappeared. They were brought north by the Assyrians. They were assimilated into other people groups up north. And there is no record of them beyond that. The small southern kingdom of Judah lived a little bit longer but because of their own rebellion, they too were wiped out by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. They were dragged off in exile. But 70 years later, God said, all right, not everybody, but I'm going to allow a remnant, a little group of you to come back to Israel. And you're going to rebuild and start over. And so they did that. But when they did, it kind of felt second rate. There were people there who could remember as children what the mighty temple of Solomon used to look like. And when Zerubbabel rebuilds a temple and these old folks now look at that temple, they're just like, ugh, it's just so second rate compared to what Solomon's amazing temple looked at. There was a lot of weeping. There was a lot of, we, uh, we're back, but it's not... Uh, it's not in power that we're back. They were still controlled by foreign powers, first by the Persians and then by the Greeks and then by the Romans. And on top of it all, after God brings them back to the, uh, to the promised land, there is 400 years of virtually silence from God. No prophets show up and say, thus says the Lord, you ought to do this, or God's calling us to do that. Or There's just silence. No prophets, no kings, no leaders. 
And all those prophecies that had been given to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to Isaiah and to many others, they were just kind of hanging out there. Like, is that stuff ever going to come true? I mean, just imagine you're 350 years into silence from God. Are you going to be like, yeah, I'm still believing. Or are you going to be like, I don't know, it's been 350 years. It, it took some faith for folks to hold on. They did. They held on to a belief that there would be a Messiah who would come and save their people. And bam, Jesus shows up. Now, Jesus didn't show up, uh, you know, all ready to be Messiah, all conquering king and hero, let's kick the Romans out. Jesus, as you know very well, showed up as a baby who was placed in a manger because he was born in a stall or in a place where animals were kept, in a stable. He was someone who changed the world. And that little summary we read from Paul writing to Timothy at the beginning is probably a little saying or hymn that had become popular among Christians in that earliest of church times. Something that they would say over and over again to themselves to remind themselves who Jesus is. To remind themselves of the mystery that God would show up in this way. He appeared in the flesh. That's him coming and uh, being birthed and coming into this world. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Remember at his baptism, the Holy Spirit alights on him. And he is filled with the Holy Spirit more and more. He was seen by angels. That's at the resurrection. The angels testify that he's not there. He's been risen uh, from the dead, raised from the dead. He was preached among the nations. That's the apostles going out saying, hey, this is for everyone. That's Pentecost as well. He was believed on in the world. And uh, the, as the church spread out, um, uh, more and more people believed, not just Jews, but Gentiles too. He was taken up into glory. That uh, happens only... Um, a few weeks after he's been raised again, but he ascends to heaven and sends his spirit to be with us. That little saying, that little mantra, that little hymn, they might have put it to music, was something that they held on to. This guy is important. This guy is important. Jesus is the linchpin of what we believe. He's the the one thing that holds it all together, the keystone that holds the whole arch together. So how does Jesus showing up really make a difference? Well, let me ask you, any um, Marvel comic fans here? Any? Any? Okay, I see a few. Thank you. Thank you for being strong. Uh, any Alfred Hitchcock fans here? All right, okay, all right, got a few more. All right, okay. Well, what do Stan Lee, who made Marvel Comics, and Alfred Hitchcock have in common? Does anyone know? They both make little cameos of themselves in the movies that were based on their characters. So if you look in Alfred Hitchcock movies, there's always a little moment when Alfred Hitchcock appears. And if you look in at the, at the Marvel movies, there's always a moment uh, that Stan Lee is, uh, is there in the movie. In a sense, that's what God does when he decides that he's going to come to earth as Jesus. 
and participate in our movie. But I want to suggest to you that when the author of the story inserts himself into the drama, when the painter steps into the painting, when the playwright enters the play itself, that it's more than just a little cameo. It's more than just a little sighting. It's a difference that is of ultimate importance. When the angel Gabriel announces to Mary in Luke chapter 1 that she's going to have this baby, he says this, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Whoa! I mean, first of all, if you're Mary, you're a virgin, and the angel's telling you you're pregnant. All right, that's enough, don't you think? And yet, at the same time, he says, but this child is going to be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, and he's going to be the inheritor. He's going to be the descendant, the one who receives the throne of his father, David. Well, David isn't his father. David's his, you know the ancestor, King David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, Jacob, the father of the 12 sons who were the tribes of Israel, and his kingdom will never end. This is an eternal statement. When God comes into the world, he's coming in and saying, this is going to be for real, and it's going to be big, and it's going to change the course of history. This is going to be a royal birth. A new king is coming, a new kingdom is being proclaimed, but it's also going to be a royal scandal. In in Mary's life personally, because how is she going to explain this? And will she be outcast from her uh, little village? And will they will they execute her? Technically they had the uh, the right to do that in the law, although it was not often practiced. It's a royal scandal in her life, but it's a royal scandal as well in the fact that they live in occupied territory. And when somebody walks around saying, oh, there's a new king that's been born, guess what the current king thinks about that? They're not all that happy about a new kingdom that might be coming in in their place. And of course, King Herod learns about that because the Magi come to the baby shower. Who knew, who knew that was going to happen? These wise men show up and they've got these presents that, you know, I mean, I'm sure that diapers would have been helpful, but they bring like all this kingly stuff, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And because of that, Herod, King Herod, the king at the time, uh, uh, wants to, to, to wipe out that king, and so he wants to kill Jesus, and the, the family must flee. And guess where they flee to? They flee to Egypt, which is, it's amazing. It's like Egypt, the one place you never go back because you were a slave there. And yet Jesus and his family go back there because He's in the process of reversing the curse that had been on this 
this group of people. And so as the one people had gone into Egypt and become a slave and, and, and come out of it, been saved out of it, now he's going into Egypt, into exile as well. And he's going to come out of it as well, but he's going to come out as a conquering king. Not quite when he's just a kid, but that's where he's headed. And when you come out of exile as the conquering king, there's going to be a battle between the current king and the new king. Two kings cannot survive in the same place. Shakespeare knew that really well, didn't he? That's the plot of so many great plays, Macbeth and Hamlet and so many others. There's going to be a fight. If somebody shows up and says, a new kingdom has arrived, a Messiah has shown up, there's going to be a fight with the old kingdom. See, Jesus was a remarkable revolutionary in his work here on earth. And we often miss that because there are sort of two images that we have of Christ that we, we kind of latch on to. It's sort of popular in our culture to think these things, and it's even tempting for us to think these things. The first one I'll call is Jesus as Oprah. Do you know about the Jesus as Oprah image? He's a compassionate guy. He cares about people. He doles out some advice. He tries to help you. You know, there might be a key to a car underneath every person's seat here, but there's not. <laughs> Jesus is the nice guy who's here to help, okay? That's Jesus as Oprah. And the, the, the other is Jesus is the spiritual guru. Jesus is here to uh, give us a free pass to the afterlife. A get-out-of-hell-free card. He has come so that we can all leave. Have you heard this? He's here to basically get rid of this stuff so we can all go to heaven and be different than what it's like here. The problem is, Jesus isn't like either one of these images. Jesus is a revolutionary who talks about the kingdom of God showing up here on earth. Remember what he asks us to pray? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. He's the kind of guy who tells parables about mustard seeds. They start so tiny, but they grow into such a great and mighty thing. He's a revolutionary who wants us to know that there's a new kingdom that is rising and he encourages his followers, the people around him, to follow him and start a truly radical uprising. But it's different from the kind of radical uprisings of revolutions that we're used to. It's not the kind of thing that George Washington did. It's not the kind of thing that Che Guevara did all over Central America. It's not the kind of thing William Wallace did long ago in Scotland. This is a shepherd king who's shown up and rallied the people and they're all like, we're ready for the fight. Yeah, let's do this. And then he messes it up. Like just when he's got them ready to go and to fight and, and restore Israel and kick the Romans out and make everything good so that all these Gentiles will come meekly into town and go, yeah, you're right. Wow, we really ought to should, should have been living like the Jewish law this whole time. And he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he says, okay, here's the radical revolution. 
love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to get killed by religious people who I have a lot of problems with. And all those sinners over there, let's hang out with them. That sounds like a place I ought to be. The revolution is going off the rails. Why is he not doing what everyone expects? I mean, he could get himself killed if he doesn't play his cards right, which, of course, is the whole point. Listen to these words, these hints from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, talking about a coming suffering servant, a coming Messiah. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Wow. When you think about what Jesus did on the cross, and you think that those words were written more than 500 years before, you realize that there's a big picture here. That God is doing something far more than people could anticipate at the time. And probably even far more than we can realize even now at this time. It's like this future man, this servant Messiah, would jump on the grenade of sin in order to save us from the consequences. I I remember when I was serving uh, many years ago, in Arkport, there were some folks there who were the grandparents of a young man named Jason Dunham. Jason Dunham was a Marine who was uh, serving, I believe, in Iraq. And they uh, came in in the middle of a firefight. They came into a room, uh, he and uh, three other guys. And uh, just as they entered the room, a grenade came into the room in the corner. And Jason, before anybody could think, whipped his helmet off, put it over the grenade, and put himself over it. He survived that blast for a few days. They carried him out. He saved the lives of his comrades, and he died a few days later. I went to his funeral. It was powerful. Somebody who, in a flash made the decision to sacrifice himself so others would not bear the consequences. Friends, that's what Jesus did for us. He jumped on the grenade that we would not have to take it. 
What would qualify Jesus to be the one who could sacrifice himself at Passover time, just like a Passover lamb? It happened right at that same time. Who by sacrificing himself could expect that we would be saved from our sin. Well, remember Stan Lee and Alfred Hitchcock and God inserting himself into the story just like they do into their movies. God puts himself into the story because God is the only one who can conquer and forgive our sin. And he puts himself into the story as a human being because a perfect human is the only one who can pay for the sin of others with his life. He's the only one who can reverse that curse. And guess who Jesus is? Jesus is the God-man. He is the one who is perfect for being the sacrifice. And so, in a way, when everyone else is thinking revolution, he's thinking real revolution. Life-changing, world-altering revolution. He fits the bill because like the leader who will take the fall in the company for the sins of a lower-level employee, like the king who will save his people by offering himself for the ransom, he is the one and the only one who can do this. And when Pilate brings him out after he has been beaten about by the guards and he has a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe on, and he brings him out in front of the people to mock him, You know what Pilate's words are? H-A homo, which means, behold, the man. Pilate had no idea what he was saying. Pilate was saying, not behold a man, behold this guy. He says, behold the man. Jesus was the man. Jesus is the man. We serve a living God who is still alive today. That's why God showing up in the flesh is such an important part of this long story short. He's the only one who can set things right after it's been messed up. He's the final result of all those hundreds of years of preparation that God did with the Israelite people, teaching them that actions have consequences, teaching them that sin is so deadly that only blood can make it right teaching them that God's ways are bigger and better than anything we could ever dream of. And on the cross, we got the fight that we'd been expecting, except it was so much greater than we anticipated. God dealt with the evil that had infected his good creation. And Jesus played the role of the one who could save us. Then even better, though, Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back to life after a few days. And by his resurrection, we know that death doesn't have the last say. That anything broken can be fixed again. That more can be mended than we ever suspected. Remember during the fall of humankind when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit? They ate a meal and their eyes were opened. The text says their eyes were opened and they saw the result of their sin. 
But also remember on the road to Emmaus after Jesus has risen and he walks with two people who don't recognize him. He's incognito. He's with Cleopas and it says another person. It doesn't tell whether that person is male or female. It would be interesting if it was Cleopas's wife, wouldn't it? Because in that walk, Jesus recounts to them, starting with Moses and the prophets, how everything in the Old Testament leads forward to him coming and being the Savior of the world, dying for everyone's sins, and then rising again. It's like a giant movie trailer that has been preparing them for the Messiah. And they said later that their ears were burning. It was like, this is the most amazing thing. We never saw this before. And then when he breaks bread with them, as he starts a meal with them, what happens? It says, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. A couple at the beginning of history whose eyes are open to sin and a couple after the resurrection whose eyes are opened to the reality of what God has done. This Jesus is enough story. It's real. People saw it with their own eyes and testified it to it and wouldn't give up that story even when they were tortured and killed. This revolution of love is stronger than any violent revolution ever could be. That, friends, is real. This hope for hopeless people who think my life is washed up, I have nothing left, friends, hope is real. This following Jesus, not because of guilt, but because of his grace that he's just spread out before us, that is real. This reversing of the curse of sin on humanity is real. This Messiah who finishes the work of Israel to become the light of the world, that is real. This life-changing reality of our own lives being changed and the joy of telling everyone around us that it's completely real, that is real. That is real. See, the author entered the play. And now neither Romeo nor Juliet nor you or I or anybody else needs to end up dead in the grave at the end of the story. Friends, God showed up in the flesh for real. And that changed everything. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your ways are better than ours. Your thoughts are greater than ours. And you have a plan for us and for this world which is far greater than what we can expect. We're so grateful you entered the story. And we know that it's not even the end of the story. There's two more movements. We pray, God, that when we start to forget this stuff, that you will call us back, that you will remind us of your intense love for us, your self-sacrificial love for us. And God, I pray 
that every single person here will say, yes, that's who I want to be with. I'm following you, Jesus. And we pray it in your name, Lord.